Hey, one more thing before you go. Have you ever wondered what men of a certain age talk about and think about? In this episode, you're going to get an inside scoop. We have a conversation with Kevin O'Connor. He's a masculine life coach. We discuss masculinity, staying healthy, and dating in today's society. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is The Thing About Men of a Certain Age. My guest in this episode is Kevin O'Connor. He's an intuitive, connected, powerful, and masculine life coach, which means he specializes in coaching men in particular. He has a very unique way of seeing the whole person, asking the right questions, and offering just the right amount of support. Kevin's unique recipe for success is being brought to the show. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Pleasure to be here, Michael. I was looking forward to this uh, for the last few days and uh, looking forward to having some real conversations about some interesting topics that perhaps guys like us it historically would have shared uh, shied away from. So looking forward to it. Absolutely. So am I. This is going to be uh, fun, interesting, and it's going to be educational. So let's start from the beginning. Where'd you grow up? So I'm a Canadian, raised uh, in a military family in the uh, province of Ontario in Canada, just outside of the city of Toronto, which is the fourth largest city in North America. Many people don't realize that Toronto after LA is the next largest city in the North, in North America. Um, and... Um, Many people don't know a lot of who Canada. It's interesting. Uh, Canada is 30% larger than the U.S. with one-tenth of the population. And wow. yeah, and it's about yeah, 90% yeah, of Canadians live within 100 miles of the U.S. border. So it's this long, and, and Canada, the U.S. border is the largest unprotected border in the world between two countries. And I think Canada is a lot more colder than we are. You would think, but that is the northern parts of Canada. But you know that if you drive almost directly east from Toronto, you hit Boston because really? Toronto is dipping down. It is much further south than northern Michigan, North Dakota, Colorado, Washington State. Toronto is actually quite a bit further south. So it's colder in many parts of the U.S. And, uh Maine is much further north than Toronto, uh, New Hampshire. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's just if you look, it's that slice that comes down, that little boot that comes down uh, along the Great Lakes. That's where Toronto's nestled, just right across the border from really about an hour and a half from Buffalo. Well, let's not tell my kids that I didn't study my geography. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. You wouldn't be unusual in uh, as an American uh, knowing less about Canada because really we tend to pay attention to the things that make the most um, biggest impact on our lives. So I don't uh, fault any American for not knowing what's sort of above that 49th parallel because it doesn't touch them that much. I do know you guys have a huge entertainment industry uh, up there that supports, you know, uh, creatives from that side. Uh, I have kids in the entertainment industry and, um, you know, they film a lot up in Canada and uh, yes. fact, at times more in Canada than they do down here. Depending on the U.S. dollar, you're right. Um, Vancouver and Toronto are huge centers for film production, television production. And, of course, there's a significant number of entertainers that are actually Canadian that are in the uh, spotlight in the U.S., such as Drake or Justin Bieber or Celine Dion or, um, you know. How we Howie Mandel. Howie Mandel, Dan Aykroyd, Jim Carrey, Mike Myers. They're all Canadian. My, the guy who um, did uh, the Saturday Night, Li uh, Saturday Night uh, Live, that's uh, Lorne Michaels, is a Canadian. He's been oh, producing that for 40 years. Um, yeah, uh, all of us. It's big, big. Can Canadians often come south to the, to the U.S. to go to the next level. Well, that's cool. When did you yeah. guys move here? I've been here uh, for a couple of years now. Um, I spent most of my life in Canada. I also lived as a kid in uh, the UK for a little while and in England. As I said, my father's military is a pilot. Um, and then I uh, raised my children. I have two adult children, one 32 and one 29 in the city of Toronto. And then I, the end of a 30-year marriage, um, I left Toronto, moved to the west coast of Canada, and have been down, coming back and forth uh, from the U.S. to Canada over the last couple of years, enjoying Southern California weather. And um, as you said earlier, like there are seasons in Canada. <laughs> and, and, and even though I pretend that it's not that cold, still there's winter, there's snow, there's ice. And you can do a lot of that. And then sometimes like, I kind of like it in the south here so that's that was, yeah yeah i grew up in colorado um i was on the job in colorado and uh 
we lived in the Colorado Springs area, but I, I, we lived up the pass in Woodland Park, which is about 8,500 feet up behind the mountains. My, my front yard was actually the backside of Pikes Peak. So we got snows in May that were 30 inches, mm-hmm. kind of a situation. And then we'd have a f- couple of months of where everything melted. And then about October, it would snow and then stay all the way around till May when it thawed again and started all over. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Pikes Peak is where they do that uh, event where they drive ATVs and motocross bikes up, up this, uh, up the hill, right? And they it, drive full, full fledged race cars and all the way up to the top of the Pikes Peak Hill Climb. Yes. And it is, I, I used to work for the Sheriff's Department there and we covered <clears> that. And I'll tell you something, the edge of that, these guys are going like a hundred miles an hour up around these corners. And the edge is right there beside you. These guys are proficient in the driving. So they go off the edge, they're dead. They go off the edge, they're either, well, the cars are really, really fortified. They're more Mm -hmm. fortified than the most race cars because of that. So we've had a few people that were killed um, over the years. A motorcyclist was killed because obviously you're on a motorcycle and you go off the edge, it hurts a lot. Um, but some of the other cars, there's been a couple that's killed, but most everybody has survived, believe it or not. Remarkable. Just because of the, the way they build the cars, they're just, they've got a, um, uh, like a, a stronger cage around them mm-hmm. than typical race cars. But it really is a fantastic experience mm-hmm. to watch that race every year. Yeah, it sounds. It's uh, I've seen parts of it, and uh, it looks pretty harrowing. So uh, yeah, when you're a cop supposed to be watching for the bad stuff, it's hard to stop looking at the race cars. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. So they also have the um, we also have the hill climb. Where, yeah, that's uh, where you run it. The, oh, you run. Yeah, there's another one that you run up the yeah up the face, front face of the mountain, and that one in itself is. Uh, well, we've had people there that you know pass out because they're not. They come up thinking they're just going to run, and they don't understand they're going from, you know, like six thousand feet up to twelve thousand feet as they're running, you know, kind of situation. So they run mm-hmm. up it. They do two legs of it. They run up it one day, and then they run uh, up and down the second day. Wow. Yeah, and they do it that way because they want people to get used to the fact that, hey, this is not just your normal marathon. The Pikes Peak Marathon mm-hmm. is not your normal, typical marathon. It's, mm. you know, straight up and then uh, basically straight back down. Interesting. I've, I've been run, I've been a runner all my life and have run many marathons and half marathons. So I did not know there was a run up that hill. I'll have to check it out later. Yeah, you have to check it out. It, it's, and we, avoid we it. Got, I, I would check out early because when I was the cop there, and that's been a long time ago, um, they had 20,000 people show up there. Wow. To, to, wow. Not that many runners. We probably had a couple thousand runners, but they had a couple thousand runners, two, three thousand, I think, within a two day time period. Yeah. Wild, wild. If you're a runner, you, you're a runner. That's probably should be on your list. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. interesting. Um, I had COVID in the fall. And one of the things uh, for my age group um, for COVID is that they're discovering that there's a significant number of heart issues that are emerging after COVID. Yeah. And uh, so I have noticed a decline in my cardiovascular fitness. And I think it has to do with some scarring of the lungs, uh, that my heart is having to beat faster in order to process the oxygen and uh, move it into my bloodstream. So um, I may not be the runner that I chose to be, and I'm okay with that. You know, right now uh, yeah. I'm looking at uh, – you know, making sure that I'm not one of those long haul COVID folks that are dealing with stuff right. for years and years. So I follow my own little cardiac rehab plan to make sure that I didn't do too much too soon after COVID in the fall at Thanksgiving. And, uh, but my son, who's a, an avid researcher in the health area, just pulled up some articles and said, Hey, this is not unusual for there to be some cardiovascular uh, issues, uh, particularly with the heart after, after COVID. So, yeah. Well, kudos for, for coming through that, uh, well done. We lost one person. I had it. My wife had it. My niece had it. My great niece had it, and my nephew had it. And we lost my my sister's mother in law to it. Mm-hmm. So I how, we understand on your journey. And how old was she? Uh, she was eighty seven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I believe eighty seven. 
There's lots to that, that world of, um, you know, I have my own philosophy around that and and I don't want to be too controversial, but one of the things that's certain drawn to people's attention is that we've been very good for the last 30 or 40 years, maintaining the longevity and the uh, people who um, have pre-existing conditions. So, you know, the pharmaceutical industry and the healthcare industry is able to keep people who would otherwise are quite ill, sick for, uh, uh, you know, functioning for years and years. And so, of course, you get to a certain point in your life and you've got a chronic illness uh, and then you get COVID, then you're that much more susceptible. Um, but I'm surprised that no one stepped back and said, like, why are there so many people ill in our society? And what would happen if we actually as a society were much healthier, what would the outcomes be? So, you know, there was a lot talked about in terms of the response to COVID and lots of criticism about that, Mm -hmm. but there wasn't a lot of focus on um, how society had sort of set up this population to be able to function with chronic illness without actually helping them avoid the chronic illness or, um, you know, heal from the chronic illness. So we've got a lot of people that were in North America and the U.S. that are that have um, been kept alive because of their the, uh, of the medical intervention, but not necessarily healing, but sort of sustaining. Mm-hmm. And then you get COVID on top of that, and you've got some pretty serious issues. So um, I think that if we looked around the world later, we'll find that the morbidity in some countries where there were lower incidence of cardiovascular illness or diabetes or obesity, um, that they actually fared well. And so I hope it's a wake up call for people in public health to be able to say, oh, we need okay. to look after ourselves, um, so that when something happens, cause there'll be another one that we don't see the same kind of, uh, um, mortality. Um, but you know, that's not sometimes a popular thing because mm-hmm. people misconstrue that and think, are you suggesting that some of these people, um, are responsible for the decline? And I'm not suggesting that at all. What I'm saying is that because we haven't been focusing our medical resources on the prevention of some of these chronic illnesses, uh, we may be predisposed to, um, these sorts of things. So. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. I'm an individual who's got an autoimmune disease. I have severe rheumatoid arthritis. Mm. And from that perspective, I um, I mean, we might be get off track here a little bit, but I um, I literally went uh, on the medication that they had originally put me on. They tried four different medications on me, and the last one put me from 165 pounds down to 100 pounds in a matter of six months. And um, it's one of these things, well, you got to take this. And it's like, I don't have to take this. I took a proactive approach from that. And I was literally in a wheelchair. So I took a very proactive approach in my health and um, became more of a, and this is not for everybody and I understand that, but I have always been healthy because I was a cop. At one time I weighed like 185 pounds was a, a good weight for me. I worked out all the time. You know, I ran, I, I, I was a healthy guy. So I never expected even to, you know, I got injured in the line of duty. I got hit by a, a suspect's vehicle. Um, so it caused damage, and that damage eventually worked its way into rheumatoid. But if I had continued to follow their advice, I'd be dead. And if I would have continued to follow their pattern, I'd be dead. And this is my experience. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, again, maybe something for somebody else. But I, I'm primarily vegan. And um, I do eat fish occasionally, but I'm primarily vegan. And uh, I'm back up to like 145 pounds. And, you know, I'm doing, I'm thriving. I got COVID. I got over it very, fairly quickly, actually, in spite of my Im- immunity problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also take a very, I do, I do herbs instead of medications. And I even came out of my surgeries with no narcotics. Mm-hmm. Because I, I believe that the order for the body to heal I don't have to mask it with narcotics. I just need to recognize it and then work through it. And and I've been able to, and I have done it in seven surgeries. How old are you, Michael? I'm 61. I'll be 62 here in a few months. Okay. I'm vegan. I'm 60. Um, I'll be 61 at the end of the year. And uh, uh, just choosing a different lifestyle. Uh, and, and I, you know... I'm looking a little craggy today, but people do say, because I'm about 167 pounds and 
fairly lean and people say, you look good for, uh, you're, you look really good for your, your age. Yeah. And I say, well, this is what you're supposed to look like at your age. Like, <laughs> I don't really know any, is it possible no. that other people don't look so great for their biological, you know, their, their chronological age that, that well, absolutely. it's, it's not, it's not so, it's not, it's not that I've done something special. It's just that I haven't, I'm, I'm just working with my body and, uh, mm. My son says this, he just said this to me the other day. He said, dad, we're the only species that do not know how to feed itself. Like, <laughs> yeah. All, you know, it's like if this yeah. for the super evolved species, you know, that's supposed to be uh, custodians of the planet. We are, you know, you, you take any mammal, any animal, they know what to move towards to make for optimal health. Like you, you, you put, you know, if you put the crap in front of animals, they'll dig around in that as well. But but we, you, we don't know what is good for us or what's not good for us, the average person. <laughs> and it's like, wow, you don't know. We, and it's true. We don't know how to feed ourselves. In fact, we have to be like the whole world is built around. Like there's this huge prescriptive diet industry that sort of says, we're going to teach you how to eat for yourself. And that's because we've lost our relationship between yeah. food and nutrition and, and sort of vitality. There's, there's no... It's like we have no receptors in our body that are able to tell us, yeah, this is good for you. And, and if you poll people after they eat, you know, you're not supposed to feel bloated no. and tired and cranky and gassy. And, you know, those are not natural responses to a healthy diet. But, you know, go have a beer and a couple of, you know, some three slices of pizza and a few beer and, and then, you know, sluggishly complain and you think, oh, yeah, it's like, I'm not sure that that was the way the body was designed, but it felt good going in. But no, yeah, exactly. That, that I think society is is geared towards. Look at this. Look at this. This is good for you. This is good for you. My wife, my wife has moved into a more healthy lifestyle recently in the last couple of years, and she's really um, taken a, a note of it. And she's become more. She is more vegetarian mm -hmm. and vegan, but she's migrating more towards vegan. Towards, mm -hmm. no, she just cut out cheese recently. It took her a long time to do that. She had junk food uh, about a week ago. Mm -hmm. And and she sat there moaning and complaining and saying, my stomach hurts. I just don't feel good. I can't believe that I ate that. I'm never going to do that again. I can't believe I did that every day. Mm -hmm. She noticed the difference mm -hmm. from not having it and eating good food. Mm -hmm. To, I've introduced her to grilled vegetables on the on the barbecue grill, so mm. that made it. I'm getting hungry right now. It's motivation. <laughs> do, you know, you just said something which is interesting, which is that you describe what she used to eat as junk food, and and the reality is is that, at least from my perspective, of course, obviously you and I are speaking from our own life's perspective, but that's not food. It doesn't. It doesn't. You know, oh. if someone wanted to define food is supposed to. It is a. It is a substance. It's a creation. It's manufactured. It's produced. It's taken in orally, but there's nothing about it that is. It's all empty calories, and there's nothing in it, it, it um, that is food-like. Is what you would define as food. So this is one of the big things about the standard North American diet. Yes, is we're not actually eating food unless we actually consciously make decisions to eat something that comes from the earth, this green leafy vegetable there, or, or an animal that wasn't raised in a food lot that was grazing. And there's lots of, you know, regardless of you're vegan or vegetarian, or there's, there's lots of ways to choose nutritious food nowadays. And that's, that's an amazing thing. And it's a new trend. Um, and I think it's going to be, um, we're going to see more of that. And, and why do I think that? Because I think, you know, the business of food is going to change. People are going to make different decisions. And I'm thinking now to, to a week or two ago when Ford released its new F-150 electric vehicle. Yeah. And I read something that Ford, uh, it's the number one selling truck in North America or really? maybe worldwide for the last 40 years, Ford. Ford, oh, Ford, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Ford 150. So when you have a a product or a company that has that much penetration into the marketplace, that launching that vehicle will actually change the automobile industry in North America forever because it's a right. beautiful vehicle and powerful vehicle, and it's going to do a lot of things for people. And as soon as you see, you know, people not in the 
the, the hundreds or the thousands, but the tens of thousands or the hundreds of thousands migrating over to that, watch what happens. So back to the food thing is we make those adjustments. The consumer makes decisions. They start choosing healthier food. The manufacturers make a shift, provide that food, and we have a you know game changer. So that's what- I would hope so, because obviously we're the, I did an interview with a gentleman that actually, he grew up in um, America, and then he got a job over in China. So they, they this is before COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so they moved him to China and he was exploring. He was just, I think it was going through Shanghai or Hong Kong, one of the two, and he was walking around and he was asking people questions and they went, oh, are you from Great Britain? And he said, no, I'm from America. And they went, you're not from America. And, and he said, yeah, I'm from America. He said, you can't be from America. He said, why wouldn't you think I'm from America? Said, because you're not fat. Hmm. Is what the person told them, mm-hmm. and it was told to him by more than one person. Mm-hmm. And he thought he thought how how I, I, he couldn't believe it. He says I really didn't even think about it because he's a fit guy. Mm-hmm. He says I didn't even think about it. He said, but I went back and researched, and we have the highest obesity rate in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the most affluent country in the world. Yeah, it's is just, the highest level of obesity, and probably and and chronic and I'm beached. I bet you we have some of the highest diabetes and uh, uh, in the world as well. There's a heart disease for sure. Heart disease, yeah. So, um, and these are uh, these are lifestyle related, um, and uh, and we are influenced by well, my whole philosophy right now, in my life is really understanding the triggers that lead us to make decisions in our in our life. So very aware that in the world of social media, we've got arousal and excitement engineers working that used to work in the um, gambling industry that are helping design interfaces and applications that pull you back and forth to interacting with those applications as often as possible because they want your, they want to capture your mind share. You've only got a certain amount of attention available to you each day. And what is it that's going to lead you to look at Instagram or to play an online game or to do some online gambling or to follow a sports site? Like they are very, very sophisticated in the way they're engineering. So they give the max amount of feedback and interactivity to the person and pull them in with rewards. And so if you start thinking around us, we are, um, we're, everybody's competing for our attention. And much of that attention isn't necessarily need leading to productive things so, you know right. uh, and that's one of the shifts in COVID is people started to realize that they could actually get through their week or their month without the same level of consumption without purchasing the same number of things doing the same amount traveling the same amount and it's like yes there were some challenges for the, for the most part there were opportunities for people to connect at a deeper level because they weren't as distracted there wasn't as much live sports on television, there wasn't as much going on. And that created an opportunity for connection and a reset. And so that's also, I think what's going on is people realizing that much of what has grown economically over the last 20 or 30 years has been entertainment, has been food, entertainment, things that would um, take your attention that require you to sort of let go of what you're doing and invest your energy. I, I bet you can't think of wasn't that long ago you could go to a, a restaurant. There weren't televisions in restaurants. There might be in the back end of the bar, a big old, you know, big screen with a deep back and you'd watch some sports, but you can't get away from going to a kind of a sports bar or a roadhouse or something now and not see 40 televisions. Yeah. That, that didn't happen no. like 20 years ago. That just was not there. No one was sitting at the table with five people and they were all looking at their phones. Instead of having a conversation. Yeah. Well, I sometimes mm-hmm. tell people who, who say, like, I want you to imagine that's not a phone. I want you to imagine that it's a paperback or a hardcover book. Would you not think if you looked around at a table of people sitting in a restaurant and they were all reading a book and they were out together that you would find that odd? Well, it's just an electronic book mm-hmm. that they've got. And yet we just sort of look at it. Oh, they're on their phone. It's like, imagine you're all sitting there reading. It's like, why did you go out to dinner in the first place? Yeah, my youngest daughter was, uh, when we first got her phone, she would be sitting across the living room and text me. And I'd pick up the phone and say, why are you texting me? You're right there. 
just speak up. <laughs> and she probably hated using the telephone and calling. She would much prefer texting or email. My daughter was the same way. She's a millennial. She's 32. And she, it's like to get her to begin to use the phone. And she was using texting before they had uh, smartphones. So she was mm -hmm. using, you know, the, the characters, the one, two, three and stuff. And she could text like you would not believe. But it was mm -hmm. like, have you ever just thought of using your mouth and your voice? But it, 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 you know, there was something about that medium that drew her in and millions and millions of other people. And now look at the amount of people that text rather than use, you say. My millennium. Yep. My millennium is doing the same thing I finally, I put the phone down and I pick it up and I call and I say, okay, I'm done texting. Mm -hmm. Just talk to me, mm -hmm. you know, stop texting, talk to me. Now I'm not old fashioned. I just think that it's holy crap. Just, pick up the phone and make a phone call. And they go, well, it's easier to text. Well, what, what's easier? You're using your fingers. You're still thinking the same words. Just use your mouth. <laughs> your mouth moves. Um, I think we can produce something like, I think there are 11 movements a second when we're speaking uh, in order to produce sound. Like it's a highly precise, nuanced way mm -hmm. of communication and banging away with two thumbs you tried to say the number of things that you and I are saying to each other by text, we couldn't keep up. Couldn't keep up. So yeah. it's a limited form. And second of all, the, the nuances, the subtleties, how many times do people misunderstand? You can only rely on emojis like so much, oh you know, LOL. And like at the end of the day, if you speak to somebody, you can see their facial expressions, the way they move their body, right. the vocal tone, the prosody, the, it's all of that is rich. You could, you can actually communicate with somebody almost without even understanding their words, just by the way they hold their head, the way that they look mm -hmm. at you, they pause, the intensity, you can get a good idea of what they're saying. So it's a very rich communication medium. And uh, it's something that, you know, it's been lost, I think, or is being yeah. with others that are relying on other mediums. It's being lost. I, I agree with that 100%. I'm, an, I'm a visual guy. I'm an audible guy. I spent years as a cop reading body language and and I appreciate sitting and talking and having a conversation with somebody mm -hmm. with body language. You can engage somebody. You, you know, even even now looking at each other across this screen, although it's electronic, it gives us an opportunity to look each other in the eye mm -hmm. and not, you know, and talk. Mm -hmm. Not, you know, uh, not over here doing this or with my head down and a, a situation. So I yeah, communication, the art of communication has kind of waned a little bit, unfortunately. And I, and I think that it, um, it's the thing you were talking about. It's They're trying to integrate in such how much attention can I keep them on this phone? Because if I, the longer I keep them on this phone or this iPad, the longer I keep them faced under the TV set, the more I can either sell to them, deliver a message to them, or draw them in kind of situation. Kind of crazy. Absolutely. And th that's actually a component of what I teach. I do a, an online dating program, but focusing right now on, on women. And when I talk to them about, you know, how do you take advantage of online dating apps to be able to connect with people? I remind them, first of all, that there's, it's not really an online dating program. It's really just a database, just a database of people. And that the sooner that you can get to a, a place where you're having a real conversation with somebody, the more likely you're able to make uh, a decision and have an impression, sense the level of connection. And yet some people are just stuck um, and the younger generation more so. And it seems funny to say the younger generation, but the, the continual day after day, you know, light text exchanges. And it's like, I say to them, like, if this guy is not ready to have a phone call with you after the first 10 or 15 minutes of texting you, he sees your profile, he's asking about you, you're talking, you've complimented each other, you've acknowledged something. And now it's like, hey, I'd love to actually have a conversation with you. They're not willing to go to that next step. That's a, to me, that's a warning sign. That's a red flag because it's, you can just simply go back the next day, start the conversation. There's no real engagement and there's no skin in the game. You pick up the phone and call somebody and step into your masculine mm -hmm. and actually begin the process of, of engaging. 
he made quite an impression on somebody, but people are still very, very nervous ab- about that. Um, Can I ask what what are your thoughts? I know, I know that you help. You've got that program that helps you know people with online dating. What are your thoughts on online dating? For example, I'm the father of two daughters, just like you. you. So coming from a father's perspective, you know, what what are your thoughts on that? So I use the idea of an online dating. I think about it as this. Consider it like to be a huge fairground and in the Midwest somewhere. And you bought a ticket and you're going to walk into the fairground. Now at one or carnival, you know, some sections of the carnival aren't too, yeah, they're kind of seedy. It's just not the not part of the carnival that you want to spend a lot of time. And maybe there's a lot of gambling. Maybe there's some, you know, some strange and unusual things happening. And I don't know there is. There may be the food tent and the food court, and there's some great food. Maybe there's rides in a midway. So it's got all of these things. And so if you're going to go in there, I would advise people, people need to know, what part of that big fairground, if you're going to go to Disneyland, like if you just wander in and stop at the first place, I mean, you could stand in line and it's like for 45 minutes and realize like, why did I get on this ride and have a, you throw up at the end of the ride and you get off with a headache and you go like, uh, I'm not having a good time. Count me out. And another person will go in and say, I've got these two places to go and I'm going to eat at this place and I want to see this and I'm going to go on this ride. And they come up with an amazing day. So it's all about um, intention and it's all about where you're coming from and understanding exactly what's there for you. But if you just wander in, um, you're just going to, you're, you're, it's the, the risks are higher. You know, yes, it's a much more of a random experience. And if you're the kind of person who is very self, you know, secure and independent and can sort of roll with the punches and sort of, yeah, that was an interesting conversation with him. Oh, that was pretty inappropriate and not let it bother you impact you and you're you're making safe safe decisions about not giving away critical information about your personal life and things like that great i think the best approach is to be able to if you're going to go online choose the right app for the right for your age group or for the kind of person you are know who you are know what you want know how to read the signs of the other person know you know what to avoid so there's an educational component to that for sure um, and it's also the last year because of COVID, it's been the number of online scams and dating sites has gone up because people misrepresent themselves, both men and women, um, playing different age gap gating games where, you know, the young woman seems to be attracted to the older guy and he happens to be a little lonely and shut in. And the next thing you know, they have a nice little online exchange and he feels that she's definitely interested in him, but it may not even be her. She's got some lovely photos. And the next thing you know, she's having some car trouble. If he could just Venmo or cash app her $400 to get the tire fixed. And he thinks, sure. And, you know, she's not around very much. It's like, what happened to her? <clears throat> well, she wasn't real. And they're not just talking to you, but they're talking to 50 other people. Mm-hmm. And if they can play the numbers and get four times $400 a week, they've got a good month. And uh, and they use other people's photos. And it's it lends itself to... Um, a bit of the wild west it lends itself to abuse but with the the right kind of coaching and being aware you can you can i'm pretty good at picking them out now like within a minute i can sort of this person's not real and then i just report them to the online saying you know yeah and um so uh different experiences for men men our age tend to get preyed on a little bit by younger women um people who are just on the outside of our age gap they are you know hoping that uh, we're sad and generous, uh, lonely and generous. Younger women are getting preyed upon for um, perhaps the younger women are being preyed on people who are a more of a predator behavior and they're looking for something that's not financial, but looking for an experience that's certainly not healthy. So it's says buyer beware, caveat emperor. emperor. That's really, that's interesting. I'm mean, all the way around. It's interesting. Let's talk to your journey about getting there. Did you, when you got, uh, when you, after you grew up, did you go to college? I did. I've actually, I went to five colleges and have degrees from three. I was one of these guys who just kept going to college, didn't know exactly what he wanted to do. And different circumstances led me to be in different areas, which would lead me to go to a different school. I went to four Canadian colleges and one U.S. college and have degrees from two Canadian colleges and one U.S. college. 
Um, <clears throat> I started out very young. I, I started college. I left home when I was just uh, shortly after my 16th birthday and uh, was have been out on my own since I've been 16, which sounds like one of those stories, you know, we left home at 16, but in my case, I really did leave. You really I, did. And it wasn't because I was, you know, thrown out or an abusive family, although there was every kind of experience in that house. It was, I actually had finished my, my high school by the time I had uh, uh, turned 16. I had started school in England and my mom started me. They put you in school a little earlier there. And because my birthday is in December, I found myself four years of age in grade one. And by the time I came back to <clears throat> Canada, I was six and they took me to school. My, they said, okay, we'll put him in grade one. And my mom said, he's been in school for two years. So we're not, I, he's, so they put me in grade three. So I was you're right up. Yeah. Now, nowadays they'd never do it. There'd be a child psychologist saying like, if you want to mess with your kid, make sure he's 11 in his, in his, in his freshman year of high school, which is what I was like, if you really want to mess him. Yeah. So, but back then I was like, okay, it makes sense. So thus I finished my, my high school education early, got married in my early, uh, when I, I think I met my wife when I was 23. And then as I said earlier, I was married for 30 years. I was with her for 30 years. And then at the end of that, uh, I made a decision in my mid fifties to uh, leave the marriage. Um, and we were speaking a little bit before this podcast that, um, I experienced uh, what many men in their fifties and late forties experience what people call a midlife crisis. Um, I think I, I've reframed that now. And I think that, you know, there are times in your life when you reflect on your life and it's really uh, you really have the opportunity for that to be a midlife awakening. Uh, it was crisis me because I was totally ill-equipped for what came to me after my kids had moved out of uh, the house. And uh, I was in a certain place in my life. And uh, I did what so many people have done for years. Um, I started to spend uh, time and energy connecting with another person who was not who I was not married to. And so I ended up uh, making the decision that life outside of my marriage was better than life inside of my marriage and uh, led to uh, a boat of infidelity and uh, cost me my marriage. And so I have a lot of insight in that area too. Yeah, kind of life lessons sometimes, sometimes puts us on a, a different path. Um, I, what did you do for a living during that time period? I was an entrepreneur. I had my own business and uh, with a partner in the area of health and safety. We trained people around um, hazardous materials and uh, um, health and safety procedures down here in the U.S. It would be around, you would call it OSHA, you know, OSHA. And it would be, um, um, and did that for, had started that when I was about 40. Um, I've done so many different things in my life. I mean, my undergraduate degree is in exercise sciences, kinesiology. So I ran um fitness clubs and then i went back and did my masters in health sciences in speech and language pathology and i worked with uh in hospitals and children's treatment centers with individuals with communication disorders thus my sensitivity to using your mouth and your voice and your mind rather than tapping with your thumbs right. and then i um went back and did an mba and i ran uh, children's mental health agency and then moved into the private sector in the behavioral health business and became a senior vice president of behavioral healthcare company, and then left at 40 to start my own business. And I've started last count 12 businesses since my, you know, since I was in my late thirties. Uh, and I'm, so I'm a, I'm a compulsive ADD entrepreneur. I love starting things up and, and now I coach people around entrepreneurship. Just, I help, I'm a mentor to a fair number of people around there businesses. I still have my own businesses. And then I do, as we talked earlier, the, the coaching, which tends to focus on men in my age group and around intimacy and communication, things that I was not particularly effective at. I may have been entrepreneurial and, you know, a creative, but I, I was definitely uh, not particularly good at some of the emotional intelligence things and the connectivity and the intimacy and the types of things that you want in order to have a really great marriage. You think the dissolution of your marriage helped motivate you to start that business or to learn more about it? Absolutely. You know, they say you coach into your own life. You know, your story becomes your superpower. 
um, the things that I've learned over the last three or four years that I had no clue about and the insights I've had um, definitely have, you know, spurred me on to seeing what I can do to perhaps prevent others from experiencing kind of the, the upsets and impacting the lives of others that I, that I experienced. There's a saying, I think as the Dalai Lama said, you know, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional and suffering is elective, you know, it's your choice. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there's a lot of suffering we can avoid if we have some of the foundational skills in marriage and we don't have to, you know, we may have painful moments in life, you know, um, it's the suffering that, um, that is unique. If, back to that comment about my son saying, we're the only species that doesn't know how to feed itself. Well, we're the only species that relives pain. I mean, you, you have an animal, it, it, it experiences pain and hardship and it's there, it's gone. Your dog, you know, gets hurt and the door hits him in the face, that dog yelps. And a moment later, he's at your, you know, the pain has subsided. Then I'm wandering around reflecting on, gee, I shouldn't put my nose in the, you know, the door. How many times have I put, but how many times can we ruminate as human beings about, oh, I should know better. I'm doing the same thing. I should never have done that. Why did I choose that person? It's like, you've already paid the price. It's been painful. Mm -hmm. It's hurt. Now take something from that. But if you're reliving it, that choice is putting you in that victim mindset. That's really painful. That's really uh, the suffering is optional. You know, we don't need to suffer. That, that's a really unique approach. I, I spent uh, several years in a domestic violence task force. It was a multi-agency domestic violence task force. We did the worst of the worst, not just, and when I say this, I'm not, not diminishing any domestic violence is obviously wrong in observing people and going back to the same houses on numerous occasions and having to stop and ask them, why do you keep why do you stay here? Why do you keep coming back? Why are you, why are you putting yourself through this? You have a choice. And there were people that did not understand they had a choice. Yeah, yeah. I think from your perspective of, of teaching people, of learning uh, and, and learning, you're, you're kind of presenting to these people, you have a choice and you can choose this, right? Mm -hmm. I call it the mindset, uh, the responsibility mindset, no matter what you're dealing with in your life. And you talked about your rheumatoid arthritis, your surgery, your medication, no matter what you deal with um, in your life, your decision as to how you respond to those events dictates the outcome. So you know, I'm reminded of that story of these two adults who are two twins, they're twins and they were raised by this terribly abusive alcoholic um, parent who um, beat them and abused them. It was just horrible. And one became an abusive alcoholic parent and one became a world-class neuroscientist. And they asked the question to both of them, like what led you to become who you are? And they both had the same answer, my father. So one person's response to the events of their life and the choices they made took them in one path and another person's response took them in another direction. Both events, both experienced the same set of events, almost identical. They're both same age and same experience with their father. Right. So, so when you talk about your health and your, um, you know, your autoimmune illness, you can be, you have to look at that, your quality of life, what you know about the illness, what you know are some of the triggers, what it takes to put it into remission, those sorts of things. Do the research, take responsibility, and at least know that the decisions you are making are your decisions and you own that, as opposed to giving up your power and being victimized by the illness and by the system mm -hmm. and things like that. And what is that? That is really just, that's a mindset. That is something you have, like, or two people coming out of the oncology, the oncologists, and both are given a six month diagnosis of stage four cancer there. And, you know, it's, you know, maybe it's, you know, like they are, they're on their way out and one person goes home and it's like, I've got some things to do in these next six months, some people to say thank you to and some relationships to mend. And the other person goes back and says, like, just when I retire, what, what life's, life's, life's like, like if, Life just dealt me the worst card and they're miserable and they both die. And both of their, and if you ask me like under what terms that you would like to die, 
they both had a decision. Both the illness took them to the end of their, end of their life. But one person said, I'm going to take responsibility for how my next six months goes. And the other person said, the shitty things happened to me and I don't deserve it. And life's, you know, and it's cranky and like they both have the same experience. So that's a big part. And that doesn't diminish. I don't mean to diminish that there's some shit that happens. You don't have your, you know, like life grows itself, but it is that, you know, you get to acknowledge that situation, feel the pain, you know, try to, you know, get stabilized. And then it's like, what do I do with this? Like what you decided, like you told me earlier, you know, that they told you that you would never walk again. And it's like, well, I'm choosing to walk. That's not to say somebody else who doesn't walk, didn't do something, but it's to say that you made a series of decisions around your health that you might have been, that, that others might've encouraged you not to make. Or if you'd left it up and didn't do the work and didn't think about things in terms of complementary medicine and supplementation and and all those things that you do to sort of keep yourself robust, you might still be in that wheelchair. Well, I can I could have I could have chosen to stay angry and mad and in denial and uh, feeling sorry for myself and and uh, you you're right. Just to emphasize what you just said, I made a choice and the choice was to be proactive and how I manage my disease. I've still got the disease. It's still here. It's not going away. It's not going to magically disappear. But I manage it every day, and I make a choice every time I get out of bed, even if I'm in pain, that the pain is temporary. And then I take steps to try to uh, mediate that pain. And and I so yes, everything that you just said is absolutely uh, resonates with me in regard to that. And don't you think as we get older, my brother, we're, like we're in the last third of our life now, like our life is going to end. And we're aware of that. I right. think it more than ever, a responsibility mindset where we make choices every single day that can positively impact others or ourselves. Like it's almost um, like there's just so many signals around us that it's important to make, to take that responsibility to be dialed in and, and make healthy decisions, not just for us, but for those around us. You can kind of slip away with that in your forties and fifties and thirties. It's like, whatever, I've got the rest of my life. We don't have, we don't have the rest of our life. Like the rest of our life is out in front of us. So yeah, we're, on the the down- down- we're on the downside. <laughs> yeah. So what's the downside of us yeah. doing what we can to maximize our longevity, be healthy and, and be engaging and make a difference in other people's lives. Like, it doesn't really require that much energy, honestly. No, it, it really does not. I mean, and even even the way we act towards other people, and, and like you, you created an environment, your coaching business, whether it be for the dating side or through the the coaching men in in life, you have made a choice in helping people move forward in a positive way, and and that's got to be satisfying, you know, from yeah, that perspective. I, and it is very satisfying and um, everybody has that opportunity. I mean, it, it, you know, there are people doing some grand things like mind blowing things and you go, wow. And then there is somebody who says like, my kind of my days about, I go to the animal rescue, I, t- I rescue, uh, like whatever it is, there's something pretty well everybody has access to that makes a difference in our planet and in the lives of others. And not one is more significant than the other. It's, it's, so I, if I was to, you know, especially as you get older and you start thinking about what, where, what, what your legacy is, it's like every moment that you make a difference in another person's life, that's your legacy. Uh, so, you know, I went to a, right. um, a, uh, a funeral of, a, of um, um, an older Jewish woman and the rabbi was 88 that was doing the ceremony. He says, you want to keep her alive? You want to have her like forever. It's keep her in your heart and mind. And and he described an incredibly beautiful person. I knew her daughter, but somebody who made a difference in people's lives all the time. That kind of energetic legacy is pretty powerful. She touched so many people's lives. You know, it's never too late to touch somebody's life right now, right after this podcast. Absolutely. I I agree with you 100%. What, 
help me understand your coaching business. Tell me about that. Okay. Well, I, I take an approach which I call solution-focused, which means that I work with my clients in identifying where they want to be, where they are today, and what's the gap in between. And then working on very concrete strategies to help them close the gap. So, you know, the difference between coaching and therapy is therapists are working more with um, uh, maybe systemic mental health issues or, you know, they're taking more of a an approach which is um, looking at uh, historical patterns and, and trying to sort of resolve those. In my coaching practice, I want to look maybe though some of those drivers are historical they're from their their childhood but i want to look at like what's where do you want to be and what's not working what's where are you now and um and then provide them with some opportunity for them to come up with their own solutions most people know the answers to most of the issues in their lives you know your coaching is not to be able to tell people to do something it's to be able to support them and kind of evoke them thinking like yeah well probably could do this and that probably would make a difference do you think how would that look what would that look like in your life if you started to behave that way what would it you know what would change in your life if you reacted differently when you're feeling upset well i guess that would be like what would it take for you to actually do that well i could probably do that so i'm very much um um opening doors and helping people see what they have in front of them and helping them close those gaps uh, I also usually work with people for three-month blocks, so I don't, you know, one session isn't going to do an awful lot. When was the last time you went to the gym, had a personal training session, had somebody suggested you some crunches and some squats, and um, and then you shift their hand and you're like, you've changed my life. You know, I got it all now. It's generally, that's not how new habits are. And this is all about behaviors. It's like we, we have a pattern of behaving in our lives and to transform or evolve we have to let go of some old behaviors and start looking at some new behaviors and that takes some reinforcements it takes some time so it's very clean i speak with people on a weekly basis and to support them and uh it's, i find it very satisfying it's 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 um i've got a lot of other things going on but i tell you that's the stuff that really makes me excited when i you know i know when i've got a couple of clients today and i'm working on this that's that's fine does that integrate with your dating uh, program it, it does um so my dating program comes out of my own personal experience just like my coaching does so when i got off out of my marriage i i decided i i knew nothing about updating like i just knew nothing i mean i could i'm social but i didn't know how to interact and there was lots going on i remember my well, you were married for 30 years right yeah yeah, yeah it's so been I remember, a long time to not be on the yeah dating i i got married before aids hit full-blown and I got out of it after age is pretty well under control like I you know like my wife my our bodies were like hermetically sealed like we were just the two people floating around in our universe there wasn't any uh strange and unusual things happening in terms of STDs or anything so um so I got out and I my son who was in his early 20s at the time said dad you should get online you should go on to uh Tinder was the app. And I said, I've heard things about Tinder. I said, Dad, it works for all ages. So I remember going online, putting my profile up. And, you know, you're presented with different options and you can sort of swipe one way if you think they look, oh, that's an attractive. I'll read their profile. And if they happen to match, do the same thing for you, you get a match. So I got a match, like right away. I was so excited. It's like, wow, this is like really easy. I guess I'm going to be dating. It's like, it's not quite that simple. So I sat down, he left, and that was around Christmas time. Um, he came back the next day and he said, like, what's going on with the dating thing? I said, I'm so bummed. He sa I said, what? He said, well, I got this match and I wrote them a note and like they've never responded back to me. And I felt kind of sad, like was I rejected? He said, well, what did you write? So I started reading him and I read him and I read him. And he said, dad, like you wrote pages to this person like they are going to think that you are so desperate i thought well, i should tell her about my life you know i should give her a little background <laughs> it's like dad the whole purpose is to have some connection and then get off the dating app and have a conversation he said this person is going to look at this and go oh my lord he just got out of the seminary or something he's come back from Himalaya. It's like he's just integrating himself into society like and of course, they never wrote me back, but they were probably thinking what, 
you know, just a capital L on this guy. So that process, uh, you know, I became more adept at managing interactions. And then I became really interested in this whole experience because that world sometimes operates on a different set of world of rules than the, the world that you and I grew up in. And um, so I remember going back uh, about a year later, I was getting some counseling. My therapist said to me, like, how's the dating? And I was describing and then the next week he asked me about the dating. Then finally he says, I don't think you're dating. So what he says, you're doing research. He said, you are so interested in people's life, their experience, what led to the breakdown of the relationship. Like you're building a, like you're, you're interning, like you are doing research. And I realized that it was part of my healing was to just better understand relationship, understand people's lives. And that really became the foundation. I actually consciously then began telling people like, this is what I do. I love to know your story. Um, and in the six years, I've spoken to a thousand women um, wow. and heard their stories and have had conversations with them, not just matched up. It means like deep conversations. And some of those I've, you know, I've gone out on dates, but it was just kind of this broader curiosity about, well, it was all about the 10,000 hour rule or doing your reps. I just began to understand that framework in a different way. And so these, the, I've been taught really by women who had these experiences and have shared them with me. And now I put them into life lessons. Do you have any issues with dating and they find out you were dating coach and, and you had this? That kind well, of went, it's Wait a minute. Because <laughs> I'm still online for dating. I'm single. I finished, I, I, I had a, a relationship that ended just in the middle of the winter. Um, and I'm fully transparent. People say, what do you do? And they say, and then I talk that, you know, this is I'm a life coach, but I also say, and one of the things I do is, 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 is date is I'm I'm a dating coach, and they go like, well, "What are you doing on here?" As if to assume just because yeah, I'm, I'm good, I'm at there for research. <laughs> as, yeah, or that just because I'm I, I can I'm very good at providing advice and guidance that I'm a master myself. I mean, you know, I I I am. I have the same challenges that everybody has. Uh, maybe I maybe have a little more insight, but you know, just because you can fly an aircraft doesn't mean you don't get in the passenger side or go for and sit in economy and go for a ride. Like I, I genuinely am open to dating. I just happen to know that area well. So mm -hmm. it's almost like they, I had this question last night because I'm doing this online dating program starting on the 22nd and I did an information session. The woman says like all this stuff that it's, you know, that, that you've learned, how's it working for you? She was really direct. Like, in other words, why aren't you in a fully committed relationship if you know about dating? And I said, well, to be honest, there was a period of time after my marriage where I was dating where I shouldn't have been dating. You know, there's this rule that says for every five years, it's a guideline, you know, every five years you're married, you should probably take a year off about, of being in a relationship. Really? And one of the things that one of the things that men do all the time is three years, you know, they're in marriage, they're out three months in, they got a girlfriend, they're dating and their kids are like, how did this happen? And they're not really in committed relationship or they didn't, they didn't, certainly the kind of relationship they were really looking for is they were looking for a companion. They didn't want to be alone. They wanted someone to keep them company. So their definition of relationship might've been different. And that relationship often doesn't last. Wow. So, I, I've been married once before, mm -hmm. and if you count that one, I've been married for th I'm going on 32 years with my current wife. I'm not planning, in case you're listening, Diane, I'm not planning on doing anything, just for the record, mm -hmm. but for an example. So of that 32 years, I would break that down, what is, what, five times eight? No, wait a minute, what, I forgot math. Yeah, break that into five-year chunks, or what kind of chunks? Yeah, like five-year chunks. So you go. So you said, 30, So you've got six, six chunks of five. So I would, I would. You're saying that I would theoretically take six years off before I date. I wouldn't say you would be taking six years off. I think I would say that you're in your prime for being in a full-time committed relationship and have probably dealt with the baggage and everything as you get into those four or five years. You're probably going to have a number of relationships, but I wouldn't want to be the person who dates you six months in year in year and a half in kind of i'm now it's a high where, where the risk drops um and that's now 
there's two questions I, I suggest to women that they ask men when they, you know, when the man's been married, I say, first of all, ask them what part of the breakdown in the marriage do they feel that they are responsible for? And this goes back to the responsibility mindset. In other words, mm-hmm. yeah, like, you know, she cheated. Well, yeah. Okay. But of the marriage, there's a part of the breakdown that you own, you know, what is that? So if a man can't own his part or doesn't even know what that is, that's a dangerous thing because then they won't be able to answer the second one, which is, and what have you done since the marriage to ensure that that doesn't happen again in your next relationship? So easiest example would be the guy who's uh, a workaholic. I worked, I worked, I worked. I was a doctor. I never came home. And I realized, you know, my wife was lonely and I never spent enough time with her. And before long, she was spending time away. And then, you know, we were roommates and then she met somebody and I realized like, I just, I wasn't around for my kids and my wife. It's like, wow, great insight. The next question is, so what have you done? If they say, well, you know, I've been single. I, and he say, you still work the same hours pretty well. I'd be like, okay. You didn't take, there wasn't a lesson there. It was like, I, I take responsibility, but I didn't make an adjustment. And so if I was the potential dating partner, I'd be saying like, that's not a good sign. Now, if he said, you know, I finally found work balance. I realized I wasn't really even looking after my own health. I took some responsibility. I'm really good with my hours now. I do trips with my kids. You know, I have a better relationship with my kids than I've ever had. It's like, yes, there's a guy taking responsibility. So um, you can wait six years and you can still be following the recipe for aloneness or you can be, and you're going to be doing the same things or you can wait a year and a half, two years and dig in. So it's not a hard and fast, but it is Mm -hmm. that the longer, usually the guy's in a better place. From that point. And again, not going anywhere, just as an example. Yeah. Just to clarify, in case my my wife's going to listen to this when I edit it. Hey, so look, I... <laughs> we, we go in and out of a relationship for the 30 years at different levels all the time. The key is always somebody's more in love with the other person any one time. You just want to make sure you're both not not in love with each other the same period of time. That's the well, risk. Of, but there are times when, you know, your partner is not the priority in your life and you, you didn't choose that. It's just, it, there's an ebb and a flow. And f- in a good relationship, she's, they're hanging in there. They know you're going through difficulty. You're going through health issues. You've lost a parent. There's been a work, a, a work situation. So your focus isn't on that relationship, but that partner is there and knows you and is in a committed place. Um, then, you know, that's why if you think about marriages that break down over financial situations or the loss of a child, it's because you both hit crisis at the same point in time. Right. And there isn't the, there, there aren't the, the foundational pieces aren't in there to be able to ensure you have resilience and you can overcome that. Um, but yeah, so when you say, I'm not going anywhere, you may have come and gone already a few times and she may have, but the good news is that you're both still there together today. Exactly. We, we have a brilliant marriage. We've worked through our ups and downs and we've had our, me being a cop for as long as I was, I know it was tough on her. I acknowledge that. My, my injuries have been tough on her. I understand that. But my support system with my wife and my kids is brilliant. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can tell you that it is 100%. And um, I can tell my audience that they know that I support my wife and my both my daughters uh, immensely for how, how well we've stayed together as a family unit. So it's, um, but your advice is hits it right on the head. How can somebody find you if they want to look for the same advice? You know, our, here's the weird thing is that I'm most active on Instagram, which is the least likely place for people our age group to be on. I'm on Facebook, um, but I have a website. It's very straightforward. It's just the two words, practicalmasculinity.net. That's an important thing. Or I'm on Instagram with it, and it's very simple. It's Coach Kev OC. Last two letters, first two letters of my last name, Coach Kev OC. And I love to hear from people, and I love uh, interacting with men and women about their middle their middle years challenges um, because we all have them. I want to highlight something that you just said a moment ago. Um, you talked about your two daughters and your wife. 
Um, that's a very special place to be in um, as the only man around three women. Um, it's a very sacred place. And the relationship, particularly between a man and his daughter, is so, and or daughters, is so important. There's not one other relationship that has the potential to mess up somebody more than a poor relationship between a father and his daughter. Um, daughters have memories like elephants. They yep. know everything that you said or did that, you know, made a little mark on them where they were a little hurt or a little left. They can, and, and sadly, some daughters spend their lifetime overcoming those non, you know, those abusive relationships with fathers mm -hmm. or those, those, those absent relationships with fathers. And they make choices around partners. They make choices around, they just, because they, there was something about that parental bond that's so important, so nurturing that sets them up for success. Um, that if they don't have that, it's they're they're working as a disadvantage. I am very blessed and grateful to have that. Yeah, so good for Fathers you. So in my life. Kudos to you. Good work. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is I want to have all your the links in my show notes so that everybody can okay. get in touch with you. Um, but this is one more thing before you go. So, do you have any words of wisdom before we go? Yeah. And I, I won't take credit for this. I'll take, I'll give credit to my, um, my ex-wife. And it, it comes down to this in a relationship, in my opinion, any relationship and any kind of relationship, but more important in a romantic relationship. Choose your partner in the morning and choose your partner before bed. And when you make a conscious decision that that's your partner and that's who you've chosen through thick or thin and they choose you, nothing can come between you. And often the breakdown of marriages happen when for a period of time, somebody didn't choose the other person and weeks and months go by. And all of a sudden you're presented with something that made you feel a little unique and special and got the dopamine going. There's an attractive woman at work or there's a colleague or you're in a running group or there's something. And it's like you're getting something and the vibe is different. That could never happen if you choose each other in the morning, even if you had a shitty, you know, you were cranky. It's like, I choose you. I'm blessed to have you. I love you. No one's coming between you and them. And by nighttime, you do the same thing. Choose them in the morning, choose them at night. Everything's going to be all right. Words of wisdom. Thank you. Kevin, thank you very much. I know we didn't get to talk about everything that we discussed previously, but I think that leaves us open for another discussion. I'd love that. It's great to be on your show. And, and, uh, I love, uh, your uh, perspective on life. And uh, I think there's a lot of alignment between the things that we talked about today and our own values. And uh, hopefully that's inspiring to other people. I hope so as well. I believe it will be. So thank you very much. And I look forward to the new conversation. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. That's BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.